Hey, this is David. This week, I'm joined by Christine King, the director of the Gateway for Accelerated Innovation in Nuclear, or GAIN. We're diving into the wonderful world of innovation within the nuclear community and how it partners with all forms of energy to build a sustainable future. Join us for the conversation on the QTS Experience. The most valuable commodity on Earth today is data. Make it, use it, move it, and protect it. My name's David McCall. Join me today for the QTS Experience. Christine King, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. So I'm curious, how does a young person from Easter Carolina go to the San Francisco Bay Area to get involved in something like nuclear energy? That feels like an unusual path. So this is actually my 30th year in nuclear, so thanks for calling me young. Really do appreciate that. Um, maybe that face cream. You got started actually, at 10. Hey, yeah, I like well, it. Yeah. Maybe all that hope in a jar is really working. Um, so I went to NC State, and um, immediately after graduating with a chemical engineering degree, have always been fascinated by nuclear technology. Um, I got the opportunity to work for a nuclear company in Virginia. Mm. And I spent the first 10 years of my career doing outage work. So right. I traveled domestically and worked on the power plants. Um, my primary focus was on the steam generators, um, doing inspections and things like that. Um, ultimately, what happened, though, was my husband got the opportunity um, to take a job with the Electric Power Research Institute in California. Mm. And... I thought I might go with my husband to California. <laughs> so that's how we ended up in the Bay Area. Yeah. Um, and I actually ended up getting a job at the Electric Power Research Institute as well yeah. and spent 15 years there. Um, and But I've always been with the commercial fleet mm -hmm. of nuclear power and just recently came into the Department of Energy and the National Labs. So that was a big change for me to go from the commercial side of things um, to the government side of things. First of all, why do we call, um, why did you say fleet? What is, what is meant by fleet? Well, I mean, so here in the United States, we have an existing nuclear fleet. Right. Okay. And we think of it as a fleet because primarily our, these are light water reactor technologies. Okay. So the technology is common. So you can think about it as a fleet. Okay. And um, this kind of the subcategories are a boiling water reactor and a pressurized water reactor. Okay. And these are actually global fleets as well. It's not just a domestic fleet here in the United States. Right. We have um, a little over 90 operating plants here in, in the U.S. Mm -hmm. worldwide. Um, we're in the I would say like 480 mm -hmm. um, worldwide. Mm -hmm. And most of that technology that's operating today is a light water reactor technology. So mm -hmm. it allows us to manage and share lessons learned as a fleet. Right. So that's why I talk about it as a fleet. I'd never thought about it. I thought maybe it was tied to, I know we have small reactors and naval vessels, but I'd never heard, like I, I wouldn't think of oh, that's solar a whole, farms yeah. or wind farms as a fleet. I just thought it, we've... I've heard you say that in other conversations. I've never heard that before. That's yeah. a cool analogy. 
Yeah, and and yeah, you do have, well, and understand that our technology was born out of choosing to use light water reactor technology on our Navy submarines. Right. And, you know, that was choice one. And then we also decided to do that commercially um, by having a common workforce and all of those types of things. There were some economies of scale associated with that decision. So when you first went to your folks and said, I'm going to go inspect components on an, at a nuclear power plant, were they like, mm-hmm. yay? Or were they like, hmm? No, I think, I, well, I think my parents were. Um, She's out of the house because that's what I'm going to do. Like all my friends are celebrating when their kids graduate. I still got two in school. I'm like, dear Heavenly Father, please let him go somewhere doing something just out of my house. Come visit often, just not. Uh, but I'm curious, like it, when you first did that, did your friends or family say, oh, that's a great idea? Or they're they're like, that's an interesting choice. Or had you studied specifically to go do something like this? Well, I had studied chemical engineering and my dad was a mechanical engineer and my mom was a registered nurse right. um, and working in mental health when mental health was not a popular um, right. or in even. In fact, it was a stigmatism. Yeah. Like, and, and how dare you? Yeah. And wasn't even talked about. Right. So, um, so for them, I mean, I, I was like, I'm fascinated by this technology. Um, to be honest with you, if I had been a guy, I probably would have been on a submarine. Oh. But um, yeah. I, that wasn't allowed back then. Yeah. Um, Isn't so it crazy this, how the world turns? Yeah. So this was the closest I could get to the technology. Um, I started out in the business doing chemical cleaning of steam generators. And I love my mom, but, you know... People would say, well, what's Christine doing after college? Right. And she'd go, well, she's a cleaning lady. <laughs> and I'm like, and I go, Mom, I I went to school. I graduated. Like, And she goes, well, if they're curious, they'll ask more questions. Yeah. I just don't tell them that you're cleaning steam generators in yeah. a nuclear power plant. Yeah. I'm like, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> I think I'd like your mom. I like her style. That's so funny. Um, it reminds me of somebody, uh, I can't remember the exact industry they, they were in, but uh, let's just say cleaning lady, they pulled up in their Ferrari. This is not a joke. This is actually somebody said, and they pulled up in their, or whatever their fancy car is. I think it was a Ferrari and the, um, they're having addition put on their home. And the person said, what business are you in? Well, I'm a, I'm a cleaning lady. Is that all you do? And they looked at their house and looked at the car. You think I should do something else? Like, you know, if you're if, <laughs if you're wildly successful, you, yeah. you know, yeah. maybe you should reconsider. Um, so you got started doing that. You you've moved out west. Um, mm-hmm. Why did you feel like it was important to go from industry, private industry, to work for the? government. Um, that's an unusual, I don't see a lot of people doing that, I guess is my question. Well, and when they first called me, I wasn't, um, ex- my dreams are fulfilled. Yeah. I wasn't excited about being, um, the government and the national labs uh-huh. don't necessarily have good reputations for sure. being fast, right. um, easy to work with, right. um, those types agile. of agile, agile. Yeah. yeah all, all the things that you might want right. in a, in a good job. Um, but when we look at what it's going to take to achieve a clean economy, mm-hmm. the government has a very important role to play. And the Department of Energy in particular right. has an important role to play. And I was lucky with the job at GAIN, at the Gateway for Accelerated Innovation in Nuclear, 
it is focused on that bridge between the labs and private industry. Mm. And so coming into the labs with commercial experience makes me uniquely qualified to help the labs be relevant, be agile, be responsive. Um, and, and so that's what drew me to the job. Mm. I'm excited about what's going on in the Department of Energy. And I'm excited to see the Office of Nuclear Energy in particular um, not be as isolated as we have been in the past mm. and to be, um, to be part of these larger crosscuts and thinking about how we're going to achieve a clean economy. Well, let's dive into that. So okay. um, when was GAIN established? And um, I love how you talk about the labs, but that I'm, I'm trying to get my head around that. So what when was GAIN established? Okay, so for, just for yeah, fun, yeah, okay. quiz, we're going to turn the table <laughs> yeah, here. Please. Quiz for, how many national labs do we have in the United States? How many national labs of any type? Yeah. Just one? No. No. We've probably, what, four? 17. 17 national labs? 17 national labs. Four, are they, like, would they be in, like, biology? All, uh, all sorts of things. Really? Yeah. So you're, t I mean, so we have national labs. I'm so glad I'm in control of editing. <laughs> No. Because my lips are going to say four, but you're going to hear in the final podcast, 17. It's going to come in like a computerized voice. It's um, No, and I think that's one of the things that people don't realize yeah, is, no is the fundamental research that's going on within our national labs. You you know and you know can plug in NASA, right? NASA or DARPA. Or, or DARPA, yeah. right, those types of things. Yeah. Our national lab system, through the Department of Energy, the Office of Science, the Office of Nuclear Energy, um, EERE, um, Office of Fossil Energy and Car Carbon Management, mm -hmm. right? All of this focused around the fundamental science um, of energy and energy production. And I mean, and, and the labs are just fascinating places to do giant experiments. Is, it's a it's an amazing thing. So, mm. um, so sorry. No, that's your question was. Yeah, my question is. Oh, well, first of all, uh, now I'm going to go research about national labs um, and try to get those other directors in here. But I guess my question is, when was Gain established, and like, what's the big idea of that right. national lab, and why do we call it a a lab? Because when I like when I know that I've had people from DARPA on before or have served at DARPA. And it's awesome and terrifying at the same time, some of the things that they mess around with. Yeah. But it, you know, whenever, at least for myself, and maybe I'm, I'm sure I'm just ignorant, when I hear the word nuclear in anything, I had to do a nuclear stress test a couple of years ago, part of I mean, just building a cardio profile. And I was like, I don't know, this doesn't sound like that's a good idea. Um, test turned out fine. Everything's fine. Just regular checkup. But I hear that word in there in lab and I get more anxious because of what are the, what could be the consequences. So help us to understand when was GAIN established? What, what does the lab mean? Okay, so GAIN was established in 2015, 2016 timeframe. It okay. was an initiative um, out of Obama's administration. There was a big announcement at the White House. I wasn't there. Right. You weren't at the White House? I wasn't at the White House, imagine that. <laughs> um, but, the, but the idea was to ensure 
that the dollars, the taxpayer dollars that have been invested in decades of research for many different types of reactors. So I spoke earlier about when we chose the light water reactor mm -hmm. technology. In the same time frame, we were we were studying all these other other technologies, high temperature gas and fast reactors and sodium reactors. I mean, so we we have all of this data mm -hmm. and experience operating experience. We built them. We ran these units. Mm -hmm. We wanted to make sure gain is the avenue by which that experience benefits the new nuclear entrepreneurs that are out there mm. that are on the private side of the business they're trying to design a new fleet of advanced reactors mm -hmm. to support a clean economy mm. and so we wanted to make sure that all of our experience did not go to waste and that we take that so we had to have an avenue to be agile and responsive and flexible and get that information out to private industry. So that's what we were established to do, hmm. was to make sure that the national labs were easily accessible to these new nuclear entrepreneurs. What's a nuclear entrepreneur? Because I, I could see somebody in their garage experimenting, making the next sneaker or tennis shoe or the next, uh, you know, com computer component or whatever, kind of messing around and like, right, hey, we've got this great tradition in America with mm -hmm. Apple computer and every other kind of way on how we, how, how do you become a nuclear entrepreneur? Hey, I have an idea. I want to go. How, how does that work? Well, so so there's different classes, right? So some of them are I'm a you know have come up through nuclear engineering and they're interested in it, but at the end of the day, if you're innovating, mm -hmm. um, and a lot of people are thinking about how do we achieve a clean economy, how do we decarbonize, right? They're interested in they're interested in doing something meaningful around decarbonization, mm -hmm. and sometimes when you start to get into the research, even if you're not a nuclear engineer, you start to understand why nuclear is an important part of that equation. Mm -hmm. And so we have mixes of people that are from different engineering disciplines, but in studying decarbonization and what it's really going to take mm -hmm. and thinking about even just decarbonizing electricity, they come to nuclear and they go, why aren't we doing more of this? Mm -hmm. And I want I, I think this is important and I want to I want to help either build right. a reactor or be part of the supply chain such that we can decarbonize our economy. Now do they show up with an idea or are they showing up to learn and watch other people developing stuff or are they um, uh, do you just clear out like some lab space and say, all right, you're over there in Bay seven, don't melt the building down. How does it <laughs> how do, obvi I don't mean to be uh, flippant. No. I just have no idea how you would uh, how how does that happen? So so we get we get calls from the you know, two guys that just graduated that have an idea and right. they want to discuss it all the way to people that are have hundreds of employees. They're ready to build demonstration units. Right. Um, they want, you know, they want some of the operating data that we had before so they can start to validate mm. their models. Right. I mean, so what it starts with is a phone call to our team mm -hmm. and we listen, mm -hmm. right? Where are you in your concept? 
How can we help you today? What, you know, what is the expert, the facility, you know, how can we get you connected to the right person within the lab system? Mm -hmm. So it might be at Idaho National Labs. It might be at Oak Ridge or Argonne or Pacific Northwest. See, you're starting to learn the labs. I am. Sandia or Los Alamos, right? right. So it's it's we in making it easy, making mm -hmm. it accessible. It's a one stop shop. Mm -hmm. I have a very service oriented group, mm -hmm. um, and so we we want you to call us first. We listen to what you need, and we we bring back what you need. We we go to work on your behalf inside the system. I promise, when you answer this question, we can edit this out, so so the truth doesn't happen. But I'm curious: Do you have like that second phone on your desk? So when somebody calls up and says, "Hey, here's my idea," I imagine you've got a board up somewhere that says "Crazy Idea of the Year." And you guys have a contest to see which one's the craziest. Or you've got that second phone to some fast strike group that says, hold on, somebody's doing something crazy and we've got to intervene immediately. Don't answer those things. I don't want to. But I, I, do you ever get ideas that are um, cause for concern? <laughs> well, I, I wouldn't say it's cause for concern. Sometimes you get somebody that are that's interested in the technology um, but especially in smaller teams, yeah, and they may not have, let's say, a fuel expert on their team, right? And so they come and they're, let's say, they're halfway into their idea and their design, but they need some help because they don't have a fuel expert on their right. team. So we go, okay, so let's let's sit down, let's get you connected with a fuel expert, let's help you build that initial model of right. how of your core design. Um, and one of the ways, one of the ways that's beneficial is because they don't have, they can push off hiring that expert by using a national lab expert in that space, mm -hmm. um, helps them preserve capital, mm -hmm. um, you know, in a private company, that's pretty important, especially yeah, when you're sure. young. Right. Right. Um, so I wouldn't say that they're crazy ideas. Mm -hmm. I think it's, you know, depending upon the maturity of the company, sometimes it's, you know, it doesn't exactly work that way, mm -hmm. but you're close. Mm -hmm. And we can we can help them shore up those designs um, and and tight, tighten it up. Yeah. So the dark guys crack me up sometimes and terrify me when they're like, yeah, somebody came in with this idea. And we're like, mm, that doesn't sound like a great idea. And they're like, well, we've already tried, you know, we've already gargled with blah, 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 or something like what? Drink milk of magnesium right now? Like, it, I just remember those calls early days of being a parent and, uh, you know, calling my mom like halfway through or my dad halfway through. Hey, I did this. What do you, is that a good idea at all? Do not do something like that. Oh, okay. And I had put my hand over the phone. Baby, we're not supposed to do that. Unwind, you know, unwind it. Um, I, I anyway, you, you don't have you, to. You put aluminum foil in the microwave just to see what would happen, didn't you? I did not. I did not do that. Now, I'm not going to say when my daughter, who's hopefully not listening to this, might have been crying uncontrollably that I blew in her mouth to get her to go so that she'd stop crying. I'm not admitting to anything like that <laughs> um, and that that would be healthy to uh, normal cognitive development. But, um, you know, I just it's as people are experimenting by by definition, as they're you know, they're pressing 
um, they're either expanding existing boundaries or they're trying to establish um, a, a different paradigm mm -hmm. that every now and then somebody shows up with a um, what if, which is really cool in the scientific community. We get a lot of academics on here. And, and um, sometimes they even lament the lack of um, curiosity of saying, what if? Right. Um, it just feels like if you're doing it with something as serious as this topic, that what if, you know, if you're if you're not putting the boundaries around it and really being serious about making sure you do it in a responsible way, that to what if, as you incrementally go through, could be uh, um, consequential. Well, but I think the, the ideas that we're talking about here are what if nuclear power did more than provide electricity? Hmm. What if... We use the same thermal energy to produce hydrogen. What if we use that thermal energy to deliver heat and steam to industrial customers that are trying to figure out how to decarbonize? What if we built it smaller? What if we built it behind the grid? Yeah. What if you know? What if we built it close to load? Right. I really see nuclear as an enabling technology to many things. Mm. And our technology is under innovation. Energy just in general is under every part of the energy ecosystem right now is under massive amounts of uh, uh, innovation. And if you're working in energy and you're not having fun, you're not awake. Right. Okay. Um, and so, so to me, it, it, it's kind of the Silicon Valley many shots on goal. Yeah. Right. That's what we're trying to create. Many shots on goal here will end up with the right technology, will end up with the right products that lead us not only to a decarbonized and a clean economy, but a, a totally different energy system. Yeah. And and that energy system can serve us in, in so many different ways than it does today. I love that analogy, and I also one I love your spirit. That's so cool. But I I love the that our um, uh, government has established a program. I had, I had absolutely no idea before this conversation that is encouraging this entrepreneurial mindset, which I think is the core of the success of America. One of the pillars of it. Um, where they're encouraging this and, and, and how do we leverage the resources of the scientists that have come before, the scientists that are in the middle right. of it now, the other entre entrepreneurs, maybe uh, financing options, like just this, this ecosystem of exploration, but doing it in a, um, in a wise way. You know, it, it, for sometimes I, it's difficult to be sort of what if entrepreneur while also being measured. They seem like contradictions. Like you want to push an experiment, but you don't want to have a, um, you know, a, uh, you don't well, want to have it go awry. Well, okay. So let's talk about that. So, okay. so with any kind of technology, as you, as you start to think about it and develop it and innovate it, you know, you have incremental, <clears throat> mm -hmm. you have incremental, and then you have like, let's burn, or let, something. yeah, let's yeah. burn the house down. We're going to start from a blank sheet of paper. Right rewrite the book, right? Right. Well, in both of those things, right, as you get the smart people around the table, mm -hmm. um, which I don't know that I'd be invited for that, but, you know, other smart You've people. You've got cleaning lady credentials. I do. I don't know why you wouldn't. <laughs> um, so so when you when you start to think about that, that, you know, you start to brainstorm about your particular ideas, you also start to realize, right, you start to identify, 
what is going to be the hardest thing, mm. right? And and at what stage am I going to tackle that, right? So you start to think about your off-ramps. Like, if I can't figure this out, none of this matters. Right. And I think that's, you know, that's natural in any kind of innovation that you're doing in technology spaces is, is as you get deeper into your ideas, you break it down in that fashion. Right. And so that's what we're here to try to do is if you've reached that difficult point and you're like, wow, I really could use a whole bunch of smart people. Well, the national labs have those people. Yeah. Right. Or I would really like to experiment with this, but it's cost prohibitive for me to build that experiment. We may have those test loops already within the national labs. So we can we can run that experiment for you. You get the results. The results are protected to your company for five years. Right. Con commercial, right? Yeah. So right? Yeah. We're with commercially friendly terms. Right. And so that's the that's the beauty of what we've kind of created in gain. Now to really freak you out. <laughs> I love it. Let's do it. There's a sister program. So okay. I'm dedicated to fission. Mm -hmm. There's a sister program just like us dedicated to fusion. Mm. That's doing the same thing for fusion technology. I, without going too far down fusion, well, maybe we could, but it, it almost feels like, um, so there's been fusions been in the news here lately, you yep. know, some, some great potential, some great ideas came out of a national lab. Did it really? Lawrence Livermore. Oh, that's right. I did read that. <laughs> that's exactly right. So obviously there's more than four national labs. There's, I, I'm going to guess 17. That's my amended uh, guess. Okay. Um, so smart. <laughs> thank you. Well, <laughs> um, I'm adjusting. Um, but it, it, this not the cynic in me, but the skeptic in me, having been in, for example, the data center industry, and before that, primarily just a generic IT, um, we will hear, uh, this is coming, this is coming, this is coming. In our world, it was liquid cooling, for example, or these other things. And we just, yeah, 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 I've heard that for 20 years, until like a tsunami, all of a sudden it's there. There's a 400-foot wave. It's there. It's like it's not, it's not, it's not, it's here. Um, and so with fusion, it feels like I – so the skeptic in me is I hope we get fusion. I hope it's um, sooner rather than later. But let's see because this has been a goal um, or it's been talked about rather for a while. And it feels like fission is what we have right now. Let's yep. work with that and get the maximum while we have smart people over here at National Labs and other places – working on the fusion opportunity and get the best version of that. But it's um, in my world with liquid cooling, we thought it's never going to happen. So by way of explanation, in a, if you were to go into a server room at a university or in a data center, you have a rack full of computers. And we thought 10 or 15 years ago when we got these big blade servers in yeah. that it's going to get really, really hot, they still run about the same five or 6,000 kilowatts in a rack, which is warm, but it's not very hot. You don't need liquid cooling until not just generative AI, people would know that as ChatGPT or Dolly or any of these other tools, because it's been around for a while in various forms, but the public hasn't been embraced. It hasn't been out and everybody playing with it. Now, because the whole world has bought up all the NVIDIA video cards and are putting it in data centers and other infrastructure, all of a sudden, we're dealing very quickly with um, solutions that we've had but not really needed to implement right. to deal with 
50 kW, 80 kW, 100 kW racks because we have this explosion, this, we thought it was a hockey stick before of data and uh, capacity. I'm wondering if there's an analogy there or a similarity where Fusion's going to be over here talking about it, experimenting with it, and maybe, you know, someday it's going to come and then all of a sudden it's going to be on our doorstep. Do you think it will happen that quickly or that suddenly, dramatically, or is it going to be much more of an incremental, we'll see incremental changes before it ever lands in our... Uh, so I, I think they're at a very important stage of what I would call the, the science side of fusion. And I do think it was an important breakthrough. Um, and there certainly is a lot of interest, not only on the fundamental science side of it, but also on the private industry side of it. Right. Um, and the fusion community, very similar to the fission community, is small worldwide. Mm. So, you know, there's also the benefit of that that collaboration across countries. Mm -hmm. And when you have that diversity of thought mm -hmm. on one item, yes, I do think they will make progress faster than we expect. Mm. I said, but, you know, but they do have to cross the chasm from the science part of it to the engineering part, right? right. So, so they've, they've got to nail the science and then we have to actually start to go, okay, so what does a reactor look like? Where do you build it? You know, so there's kind of some more, I hate to call engineering mundane right. because it's my thing. But, you know, to someone who's designing a fusion reactor, engineering might be kind of mundane. Right. Um, but that's really where I think they're headed. And the beauty, though, of fission today and working on new nuclear with these advanced reactors is we will be developing the advanced materials that will support fusion reactors in the future. Mm. We, will, we will keep the workforce, right? So by building, um, building out a new fleet of fission reactors, mm -hmm. you create the workforce and the, the experience base to support fusion whenever they're ready. Right. I don't normally see engineers I work with, a lot of engineers, giddy. But after those announcements and experiments, when you see people with pocket protectors saying, Hercules, Hercules, like they're <laughs> super excited. I'm like, okay, there's probably something here. Like yeah. this is, this takes a lot. My dad was IBM forever on the shuttle and then for another 12 or 15 years at Boeing on space station. And it was uncommon for him to get really geeked up. I saw him at a launch and a landing. I've seen him a few times, but most of the time is pretty like, yeah, yeah, I'm a rocket scientist, you know, whatever. So when you see people coming out of that, like, oh, you know, we saw the burning bush and it talked back, like, well, maybe something's here or I want some of their tequila. One of the two, <laughs> I don't know, but I, I am. Have you ever been to a Comic-Con or anything like that? Have you ever seen a group of nerds like that get together? You don't have to admit it if you don't want to, but if you're bold enough, have you ever been there or seen anything like that? I have not been to a Comic-Con, oh. but however... Oh, here we go. Um, I, I did. I'm sure we'll edit all of this out. You can be as transparent as you want. Um, I, I did stand in line um, mm -hmm. for some of the new Star Wars movies with okay. my husband. Okay. Well, and, you're going where I want to go. And noticed um, noticed who was in line uh -huh. at that, you know, the first showing. Right. Um, and those were not my people. <laughs> I'm, you know, but, you know, I married. Right. 
um, kind of into that yeah. hey, line. That so I I'm yeah. full nerd family. Yeah. Well, we're well, we're full nerd family as well. Um, a number of years ago, when my kids were little, we went on vacation to Florida, and it, it spring break time around here it didn't variably rain. Some of your time down in the Gulf is going to be rain. And so I had a big mystery bag, and on one of those rainy days, I opened it up, and it was a different Lego set of various Star Wars spaceships. And my kids were young enough then and still nerds. They're like, whatever, this is so awesome. We only got them half-built because they have ADD, but it was a lot of fun. But here's my question. So if you go to Comic-Con, you will see these two, or or of event like that, you will see... Um, two very distinct groups of people in the sci-fi nerd world the star trek people trekkies mm -hmm. and the star wars people i don't know if they have a short word star wars and it is amazing to me it's just a big world of sci-fi nerds and i love them i love their they're like the sophisticated rednecks like just a, as jeff fox where he says a glorious lack of sophistication right One's dressed like future office workers. That doesn't, that feels like we missed the opportunity there with uh, Star Trek to something other than black slacks and a polyester shirt, but whatever, I don't judge. And then you got the Star Wars people who will dress up as whatever their, you know, special creature or character is. What's hilarious is if you're meeting with one group, they're very respectful and you're having a good time. And if you go and have a glass of wine or a, a glass of tea or a cocktail with the other, they're very group. But if you bring these two nerds together, it's like cats and dogs. It's like you see them start snapping their fingers like it's sharks and jets. We're about to lose our minds because Trekkies and Star Wars don't mix. So what the heck does this have to do with our conversation today? Sometimes as I'm learning more about energy, I will occasionally bump into people that have chosen their energy, their clean energy of choice. And maybe if I'm a, if I'm an intermittent person, and I'm really down on solar. I can, I'm okay with wind I'm not cute or hydro. I'm okay. Like they're related. I mean, they're not as, you know, or, or choose your poison. But if I'm not in one of these groups, there can be tension is that it feels like we need all of these groups so what's the relationship of these groups working together with the national lab or just these other folks who are all looking for how do we create a green economy or fund the green economy or fuel the green economy with whatever sources we can that reduce or eliminate carbon is there is there sort of that that um tension between these groups or or do they work pretty collaboratively or do you not have much experience there i'm curious oh there's tension oh <laughs> there's tension but at the end of the day so i've been in nuclear for 30 years mm -hmm. right i clearly like this technology um but <clears throat> when i when i'm invited to speak to a state energy commission mm -hmm. um i will openly say hey i like this technology right and you're going to see me be animated about it you're going to see me be uh excited about it but I'm not here advocating for it. Mm. And as I have um, started to think about what it's going to take to achieve a clean economy, I actually had to take a few steps back from my own technology. Mm. And what I would really love to see is more of us behave as energy professionals mm. because in some places, wind and solar works great mm -hmm. and you can deploy a lot of it. Mm -hmm. 
and you should mm -hmm. deploy a lot of it. But in some places, that's not viable, mm. right? So we need to be open to it. The other thing that I think about with energy and, and achieving a clean economy, it's kind of like doing any kind of investment. You want diversification. Sure. Every technology has its pros and cons. Nuclear technology has its pros and cons. Mm -hmm. um, renewables have their pros and cons. Mm -hmm. So... I think it's very important for us to not create um, micro systems that are over reliant on any one technology. Mm -hmm. But that takes us taking a step back, learning about I'm not a transmission and distribution person, mm -hmm. but I had to think about what are they doing to modernize the transmission system? Mm -hmm. Like I said before, everything in energy is being innovated right now. And so how are we going to start to fit these pieces together? It's like putting the wheels on the car while you're going down the road, right? right? But to do that successfully, we're going to have to cross silos and we're going to have to work together. And that means putting, um, kind of putting your tech, becoming technology agnostic mm -hmm. and becoming dedicated to what is it I'm trying to achieve? Now, we've talked a lot about a clean economy and decarbonization, mm -hmm. but the reality is that's not always the driving force for everyone. Mm -hmm. um, when you think about some of our states that are energy exporters primarily, they're manufacturing centers. That's who they have been. Mm -hmm. That's how they built their economy. Mm -hmm. They are going to continue that heritage mm -hmm. as they should. Mm -hmm. They're trying to do it, though with clean energy, mm -hmm. right? But they're not necessarily driven by the decarbonization. They're driven by preserving their their economy. So right. it's more of a discussion of economic transformation in those states. Mm -hmm. um, and for example, you see industrial customers that have existing facilities in some of these states and they're, they're having a conversation of going, when can you give me clean energy? Mm -hmm. So it's not necessarily that a state has established a decarbonization goal mm -hmm. that's driving the transformation. Sometimes it's the private businesses that are already there or they're trying to attract new business. Mm -hmm. And I think this is where there should be a ton of FOMO around energy mm -hmm. because it is in this energy transformation that there is an incredible amount of opportunity mm -hmm. to deploy something new in your area to make the most of the resources you already have. So for example, um, if you are if you are a state that is blessed with being able to deploy a significant amount of renewables, mm -hmm. build those puppies out as fast as you can, right. right? But what you also want to make sure is that the characteristics of your power remains, reliable mm -hmm. and that you're thinking about what's coming in the future. And when you think about decarbonizing electricity or decarbonizing our economy, some of the ways we're going to decarbonize other sectors is going to increase electricity demand. Right. So as we're increasing electricity demand, we have to make sure that we maintain a balanced system on the grid. Right. And there's a few things that take a little that take longer than a nuclear power plant to build. Transmission connections is one of them. Yeah, I've heard so you say that. One of the things that's emerging is the value in those individual transmission connections mm -hmm. and under and making the most of every single one that we have 
while we at the same time are modernizing the grid and building building out new connections. But mm. we can't let these connections um, go dormant. Yeah. And so how is it that um, GAIN and that national lab works with organizations or, or whether you just in, help inform the community at large? Because until I had heard you um, say that, it, it seems very obvious to me now, but it didn't at the time. Um, that this is one of, if not the longest pole in the tent. And the other thing that you said that I thought was absolutely beautiful was there's also communities, you know, the reason why those transmission lines are there is because there's power uh, generation infrastructure there. Today, yeah. Today. And, uh, you know, America is not America. We, we don't have a modern economy without some of this infrastructure. So as we work towards um, future energy goals, how do we not just practically take advantage of the transmission, but also these communities continue to serve the community. So as you, what are some of the ideas that you guys talk about or some of the programs you help support related to these communities around our country, either that exist now or that you want to develop? Well, so one of the, one of the first things that's happening, right, is we're retiring coal stations. Mm -hmm. And they're retiring at a very rapid rate. Um, and, and there's a lot of pressure in corporate boardrooms and banks. Um, financing new project on, on, on coal stations is very right. difficult. But what you have there is an energy professional workforce. Right. Right. And coal stations and nuclear stations to produce electricity, we do the same thing. We boil water. Right. Right. Boil water, produces steam, turns the turbine, turns the generator, puts electrons out on the grid. Right. Once those electrons are out on the grid, you 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 can't you know say that's a nuclear one right. and that's a coal one and right. that's a natural gas one right. or that's a solar one, right? right. It doesn't work that way. Right. But so to me, as we look at a, a lot of a lot of when you think about what we need to build mm -hmm. from ground zero to mm -hmm. achieve a clean economy, mm -hmm. one of the concerns that keeps coming up is workforce. Yeah. Where is this workforce going to come from? Right. And from my perspective, we have to um, ensure that the people that have given us reliable, affordable energy in this country, mm -hmm. which is not a given. I know we take it for granted in the mm -hmm. United States and mm -hmm. in North America, but there's a lot of places on the planet that do not have reliable, affordable energy. Right. Those workers that have given us this deserve first bite of the apple mm -hmm. of whatever we're creating in a new energy economy. Right. And so one of the things that I'm my personal research is on is can you transition <clears throat> a coal station to an advanced nuclear station? What does that look like? So one of the things that I'm doing is I'm actually working with two utilities who own coal stations, mm -hmm. one in Arizona and one in Kentucky. Mm-hmm. To, to get into the details. Mm -hmm. You can't study this at a, a 100,000 foot level. You've got to get into the details and go and step through it. Like we were talking about brainstorming before, right. like what's the biggest hurdle? What's the first thing? So there are specific criteria associated with siting a nuclear power plant. There's flooding criteria and seismic criteria and population criteria, right? right. So that's your first screen, right? right. You know, can you pass these things, right? right? So if you can get past that, you know, where on your land might we build this? 
And the Natrium project that's going on in Kemmer, Wyoming, is doing exactly that. They're building adjacent to a um, coal station that will retire. It's uh, the Naughton Power Station owned mm. by Pacificor. And they're building three miles down the road. So they get the benefit of the transmission connection. Mm. They have the workforce. And they're in a community that needs to transition. They, they're in a community that by giving them this new power generation, they expand their tax revenue, right? It's a preservation not only of the right. community um, and those jobs, but also the preservation of the generation of energy. One of the terms I hate in the IT world or the technology world is this idea of future-proofing. I, I hear, you know, I remember when I bought my 28.8 baud modem, I had future-proofed my connectivity because I didn't want one of those 9,600 baud or 14 foot. So there's a long time ago. But, Isn't there this thing called Moore's Law? <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> but we, we throw this around all the time um, about this idea of future-proofing. Having said that, what you just described, when you're deploying a asset, first of all, I love the, the, I don't know how to phrase it, maybe the morality of that story. Look, we have an obligation, and sometimes we just don't like the, to say that, but I, I believe it to be true. Um, the people that came before us, whether they were social activists, whether they were entrepreneur or business activists, whatever, to make, we started off with something, and we identified um, the system's not working for these uh, populations of human beings or workers or whatever. We change laws so that children aren't in sweatshops or people get the right to vote or those people shouldn't be um, treated as second class citizens or not. So like we do this socially or we try anyway. And sometimes in business, uh, every now and then there's this, uh, you know, well, we shouldn't we shouldn't honor the people that came before us. Well, yeah, we should. And I love this story, which is on the one hand, that moral aspect, but it's also a very practical aspect. It's not easy to build this infrastructure, oh. the plant, much less the transmission and all the regulation that goes into right of way and transmission and the materials and the cost and whatever. So if we can leverage that, like that just makes good economic sense, even if it's only a portion of it. So we satisfy the, um, the taking care of our citizens and being good stewards of the of the communities that have built in a workforce, and we can leverage the infrastructure that that just seems all in the best um, the best ideas around clean or green or whatever we want to do in every way, not just in a you know eliminating carbon way. So, so I think about it this way: it's not, and to me. In designing a clean economy, if we are not stewards of sustainability mm. in the whole system, right. inclusive, right, not just of critical minerals and those types of things, but really <clears throat> sustainability in the whole system and justice in the whole system, That's right. then, then we have really missed a generational opportunity right. to really, and, you know, both of us having kids. Right. Right. You know, I mean, I do believe in building the bridge for the next generation. Right. I won't, I won't, you know, I won't still be working when we achieve a clean economy. Right. Hopefully I'll still be kicking it, but you know, <laughs> I guess I should go exercise this afternoon. Right. But I think that, you know, 
it's an important part for us at this point in time not to be dismissive of any technology. And all of us come at this with an, an eyes wide open. And let's make the most of the resources we have right. today and making sure that we're, we're designing a system for the performance we want, right? Right. So if energy security and energy independence is critically important to us, then that has to fold into what we're doing today. Right. Uh, this touches pretty close to my industry, data center industries. Um, we consume a lot of power. Uh, and the reason why we consume a lot of power is we all have these devices and 80 devices in our homes and they all generate data and that data lives uh, somewhere, usually in a data center, somebody's data center. And we have, um, it's very important to us, there are a variety, kind of the holistic way we're looking at things. So we, um, we want to be as efficient as we can, not just with energy, but for example, we're working water. Of, all of our new designs, we've removed water from our designs. That is a resource that we have to um, manage and be good stewards of. Um, that wasn't in designs maybe 10 years ago, but they are. There, there's all, I can't think of a modern uh, data center, certainly not one that's going to last any length of time, that does, has not removed um, or in the process of removing water. And we have various metrics that, that have evolved over the years, usually led by the big hyperscale customers. So the big search engines or e-commerce or cloud or whatever, those buyers, um, one of the things I do admire about them, there's sometimes the algorithms and the technologies can be, uh, 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 if left unguarded and just run amok, it can impact society in a way that we don't like. But one of the things I do love about at least the digital infrastructure folks is, look, we need to be really good stewards. And if you're going to provide services to us, which we do, um, then you need to manage that like this. So so we have, while we, our data centers are bigger than they ever have been, we're, we're powering more infrastructure, the growth of the infrastructure, um, our growth of energy consumption is not as much. So we are, our PUEs have gone from, which is just a, a term of measurement. We, how efficient are we in our energy consumption to deliver? Does, how many electrons does it take me of work to deliver an electron of value? And without getting into the math too much about that, but it used to be, it would be for every one unit of work I gave you, it would take me two units of work. So not particularly uh, efficient. We, we didn't build them to be efficient. We build them to be secure logically right. and physically and 100% uptime. And over time, uh, especially when the marketplace came to us and said, hey, you need to do this or we won't do business with you. It started off as sort of altruistic. Hey, we need to be good citizens. Yeah. Then they said, um, I mean, that's, you know, they said, okay, well, then you don't get any money. We're not going to do business together if you don't have this ability. So there's been a huge focus in our world. Um, and so while we've quadrupled or 10 times the amount of data that we're managing, our energy consumption has not grown by 10, but it has grown. It is. And as we look at these exponential growths of data in the next 10 years, we thought the last 10 years were crazy. It's going to be flatline compared to the next 10 or 15 years. And, and it's just going to continue this growth pattern. And so we have had to adjust. We, we're, we're 
have been proponents and are still proponents of PPAs. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that we noticed was we're a big steady base load. Mm -hmm. And when I take my base load and I only fund intermittent sources, what has happened um, is we're impacting the grid in not a very healthy way. And so we're like, well, look, we have the same sustainability goals. Not only is it mandated by our customers, but as good students of the spaceship that's orbiting the sun that we're all on, um, it has generated so much interest in us in how do we work with utility providers so we don't mess them up? How do we use intermittent where it makes sense? Um, but we've got a pretty predictable, it doesn't vary uh, right. our load. And so that can have, as we've gotten further, our industry has realized, wow, this can really impact the grid in a way that we don't want to, but we still want to chase this carbon-free idea. And so we're very interested in small modular reactors. We're very interested in ecosystems that not only make sense from an energy perspective, but how when I go into a community where we've got a, it's public knowledge, we've got a, a campus that we're building in Georgia, that's going to be upwards of 1,000 to 1,200 megawatts when it's fully realized. And so how do we bring, when we develop that, to our community around us, transmission is a spectacularly difficult thing for us to also figure out either getting power to us or across that campus. And so this is a very relevant conversation for us. How do we hold ourselves accountable? The government is certainly holding us accountable. Our customers are holding us accountable and not just our own scope one stuff, but scope two, even scope three on what are we doing? What's the carbon footprint look like in our world? And so it's really brought this conversation that we're having today um, to our boardroom, like everyday conversation. Well, and you're not the only boardroom where this conversation is happening, yeah. right? You see a lot of folks that have gone, have met their corporate carbon-free goals mm -hmm. through credits, mm -hmm. right? And now you go, okay, well, how do I get beyond credits? How do I become really green, right? right? What does that look like? And I think... So there's some interesting things that are going on, right? Mm. The potential to build close to load is a is because of the size of these reactors, because of the design of these reactors, we're expecting to have um, emergency planning zones that aren't 10 miles out from where the reactor right. is. It's going to be at site boundary. Right. So we're talking, and and the footprints of these new plants are very much are are, are much smaller. Mm -hmm. So. But then you also think about what else has to decarbonize. Mm. Will we have a hydrogen economy? Mm -hmm. How So there's going to be some electric vehicles. Mm -hmm. There's going to be maybe hydrogen-powered cars. Mm -hmm. When you look at food, mm -hmm. right, how are we producing fertilizer? Mm. Main component of fertilizer being ammonia, right? So... Across the whole board, when you start to break down decarbon, you know what it takes to decarbonize and achieve a clean economy. Everything is changing, mm. so it gives us the opportunity to look at those systems, to look at our energy differently, mm -hmm. and how we're going to produce it. And that's where looking at electricity and synthetic fuels. Our water usage, we have to be mindful of that. Yeah. You have to layer on top of this, 
what what is going to continue to happen in our climate right. as well? So what reliability challenges might we have coming our way right. and just in terms of extreme weather or right. heat in the West? Certainly, we've been talking about the heat caps, right? right? And, um, you know, cool your house down in the morning such right. that we're not, you know, crashing the grid in the afternoon. Right. You know, is that really a good plan? <laughs> <laughs> it's our current plan, but, right. you know, is that really? Yeah. Um, so, so to me... You have the opportunity to look at these different, going back to a blank sheet of paper and going, do I have to be on the grid? Mm -hmm. Could I build behind the grid? If I built behind the grid and I was partnered with someone else, what else could I do? Mm -hmm. um, looking at where we might have hydrogen hubs across the United States. How does that feed in? How are we going to produce that hydrogen? Mm -hmm. How do we help decarbonize um, cement and steel, all these energy-intensive businesses that we have? Right. How do we decarbonize that? And in some cases, the answer is going to be, I can't. Right. I have a highly tuned process to make, let's say, steel, high-quality steel. Right. And it would be actually irresponsible, maybe, to decarbonize that. I'm right. not saying I'm not a steel right. manufacturing right. lady. Right. Started as a cleaning lady, right. but that's not my thing. Right. So, but we need to be open to the idea that we're not going to decarbonize that. So we have to have carbon negative things, too. Right. So are we enabling direct air capture? Direct air capture, new technology, but also energy intensive. Right. Right. So as we balance the energy equation to decarbonize, it's going to cause a lot of shifts and is going to create opportunities for us to do things differently. Yeah. You, I think you'd love, I don't know if he's still speaking. I think you'd love um, Professor Donald Sadaway's um, TED Talk. He's been on our show. Uh, he has a very funny story about how he became accidentally Bill Gates' chemistry teacher. MIT offered... I think they still do free like 101 classes online for anybody. And Bill Gates had signed up. He didn't even know. It was just a student in one of his online uh, courses and lectures. And one day he got an email, uh, as I understand the story, saying, hey, this is Bill Gates. I really appreciate the class. I'm going to be in Boston in a few weeks. Can I stop by and see you? And he's like, delete. Like, <laughs> come on. Who's punking me? And a few days later, a few weeks later, gets another email. He's like, he goes, gets his lab assistant, like, who do you think's doing this? He goes, I think it's Bill Gates. Um, actually, that's not true. The third time was Bill Gates' assistant reached out to him and he goes, who do you think's doing this? And he said, it might be Bill Gates. And so he connects with them and it was Bill Gates and they had wow. a really funny conversation. But anyway, um, Professor Sadaway came on because he was like, look, I am our future is green energy, period, What in all its forms. Having said that, intermittent green energy is not going to be viable until we have either grid-level storage or purpose-fit. And I'm not saying I agree with him, but this was his idea was this intermittent as we're messing with baseloads. We need to figure out how to do that. One of the other parts, uh, and so he walks through liquid metal batteries and other ideas, but he's just like, we need to have this conversation. Or if I'm wrong, 
debunk it. Help me to understand and debunk it, but let's have this conversation. The second thing that he showed was they can make, their lab has made on big quantity carbon-free steel. Or mm -hmm. steel or aluminum. Maybe it's aluminum. I forget. One of the two. And he said, now, to do that off of a coal plant, probably not, you know, it mm -hmm. it's not carbon-free. But if you do it this way or you tie it to nuke because it requires the power, it's pure, it's beautiful. Like, And his... I don't even know if they've commercialized it. That was just in the lab. But his point was, as we get to these intense energy sources, we can make some of these resources, according to him, that traditionally would have all this carbon uh, as a side product or, or a consequence of it. But we don't have to if we get these other sources. And so... Right. Um, he just said, it's just another way to think of things and where he is sometimes critical, as is... Um, Avi Loeb from Harvard and some of these others. I just want people, he would say of his age, to say, and I think he's in his 70s, like, stay curious, yeah. stay interested, stay engaged. And, um, you know, we're not going to solve anything if we don't do that, if we keep trying to do status quo, because I'm trying to protect a position or whatever. And I don't want to put words in his mouth, but that was the vibe that I got from a number of these very curious scientists about stay engaged and we'll plug these alternative sources in and who knows where we could go with this. So it's really, and I'm absolutely agree with stay engaged and stay curious. Mm -hmm. It is personally challenging to step away from the technology that you know, yeah, and in my case, love, mm -hmm. right? And to start to expose yourself and be vulnerable mm -hmm. in a space that you're not the expert. Yeah. And start to think about how are we going to fit all this together? But it is about making relationships across these energy ba barriers, right? And working together. What I like about the project that we're doing in Kentucky is this is one of the largest coal stations in Kentucky. And we are, when you drive up to the plants on the Ohio River, you drive up to the plant, you drive past three steel manufacturing mills. Mm. And so to me, it's the opportunity to think about how are they supported today by this plant? Right. And how are we going to support them in the future? And then, you know, the utility is helping us reach out to them mm. to participate in this research, right? So what are the inputs that you get today? If I could give you those same inputs in the future, would you continue to do everything the same? Or mm -hmm. how are you thinking about changing your process over mm -hmm. time, right? Um, and X Energy, one of our nuclear entrepreneurs, mm -hmm. um, is they just announced that they're doing a project with Dow Chemical. So they're building a demonstration reactor um, with Dow Chemical specifically to decarbonize their industrial processes around um, how they manufacture their chemicals. You know, and everybody who uses energy, you data centers, you yeah. have a performance criteria, right? Yeah. I need, and this is a conversation, if you're signing power purchase agreements, right. it's it's right. buried in there, right? right? This is what, this is, I will pay this amount of money for this kind of service, right? right? And everybody, so as, as we go through this whole thing, everybody needs to be thinking about what is the performance that I need right. 
that leads me to a green economy and leads us to a green economy? And then how, how do we change the different parts of the system? But it does require becoming technology agnostic. Right. Getting into looking at multiple different scenarios, looking at the resources that are available in a particular region, understanding at a state and local level what they need and want, mm -hmm. and being okay, especially with nuclear technology. Mm -hmm. When you decide to build a reactor, that's a hundred-year relationship. Mm. And for some people, that's great. Mm -hmm. They want that hundred-year relationship. They want the stability. But I think we also have to make sure that we're open to no. Right. We don't want that relationship. Right. And, you know, but there are communities where they've had nuclear technology, they're comfortable with it, and they want more of it. Right. You know, and, you know, will those be the first places we build new units? I don't know. Right. Right. But we can't. It has to be bringing all the right people around the table and the opportunity to optimize. So we talked about the um, Pacificor in Wyoming. Mm -hmm. So their design actually has a, a molten salt thermal energy storage unit. Mm. And it allows them to operate at a base load of like 345 um, megawatts mm -hmm. on average. Mm -hmm. But when the renewables are not available, they have five and a half hours of peaking power up to 550 megawatts mm. with that battery. So you start to see the combination of these technologies. And for them, what that allows them to do is while the renewables are available, use them. Right. When they're not, I still have the system and the performance that I need Right. at, at affordable rates. Right. I, I think that's the key is that agnostic um, come together. We, we uh, as I said earlier, um, I got to uh, go down to the uh, uh, plant here in um, Georgia, Georgia, South Carolina border. And as it was unbelievable, it, 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 for me anyway, you know, the impressive part is the big uh, cooling towers and the, the reactors are these small things over there and um and i was it it took me a minute to shift like so this is really cool it's kind of there's a saying in sport you know you drive for show but you putt for dough so you know here's this big cool stuff with the cleaning ladies in it and doing their things and over here is this small little area and i'm like what blew my mind was we're literally splitting atoms right over there one of the things though that the cool thing about georgia power the folks that we were talking to how collaborative they have invited us a number of times to do a few things one what's your growth like we have projections we talk to other industry people but you're sitting at the table or um with the biggest buyers on earth of you know if we're talking data we're talking power yeah um you're in these conversations our data center designs many times they're heavily influenced if not just fast followers of uh, architectural designs that uh, these groups, and they're, it's a very small group of people, and we kind of uh, probably not dissimilar to your ecosystem on how we optimize these things, but they really want to know how do we not end up in a scenario that other parts of the country have where all of a sudden, holy cow, we've cons you know we have bought up the the next so many years of power. So how are we planning that? Our our governor has invited our company and then others to come in and doesn't necessarily agree, but just wants to understand 
the the legis the bipartisan legislatures. Like, how do we understand? I have a good friend here, Ali Kelly, who works with a um, the Ray, and they're all about. Uh, highway innovation, but they're doing a lot of solar and right of way. And so they're like, how do we bring these mixes of things together? Mm-hmm. Um, we love the idea of data centers here because it this is what it can bring in terms of jobs and opportunity and all this other stuff. But we need to be collaborative or you're we're not going to be able to serve your needs and you're going to have a negative impact on our um, communities. There are other parts of the country we bump into where they're not... Um, I don't know why, but they're just not as, um, and I don't necessarily just mean data center. I mean, just in general, they are less interested in the, um, the conversation. Uh, I don't know if you guys ever run into that. Do you, do you have parts of the, and we're not going to name any, never mind. We're going to, I'm going to get rid of this part. I don't know where I was going with that. Other than to say, we found that it's most successful when we can have a conversation with business and our legislative body to figure out and our uh, energy so, providers, where are you going? What are you trying to solve? And how do we do it together so that we don't miss? Because these are long lead time things. It takes a long time. And we yeah. want to have a positive impact, not just in our business, but in our community. Right. So I do think we should explore this. Okay. This, so let's, let's find a way it. to ask okay. the question. Yeah. So, you know, we were, we were back at being technology agnostic and being curious and things yeah. like that. But it also comes to who are the right stakeholders? Right. Who needs to be involved to under make an energy plan? Right. Right. And is that at a state level? Is that a regional level? What is the performance? And I think that's where um, I love to talk about set the technology aside, all of it. Right set all of it to the side and talk about what are our objectives, Mm. whoever the hour is, Mm -hmm. right? Is that your state? Mm -hmm. Is that the Appalachian region? Right. Right. You know, and in some cases, one of your objectives may be making sure that I have, that I'm maintaining the jobs and the tax revenue and those types of things. Right. right? Mm -hmm. I could imagine legislators and elected officials right. caring about that, right. right? Yeah. And so so if we can come together around a set of objectives and then start to match the technology to those needs, but the other thing is you're absolutely right. We have to look far enough out into the future. Yeah. And that's where... Our, our typical planning cycles, not just in energy, just generally mm-hmm. in business, mm-hmm. it's too short. Yeah. It's too short. And this is where and, – and we have to get used to having multiple scenarios that we're tracking. Mm-hmm. We are not going to get it right today. I cannot sit down with pen and paper today and tell you what a clean economy would look like in Georgia. Right. And get it right. Right. But we could probably put three different scenarios on paper mm-hmm. and you could get comfortable with working those scenarios over time right. and going, OK, so these technologies might fit best here, but let's jigger it a little bit of a different way here. 
And then you're watching those technologies and you're watching those scenarios over time mm -hmm. and you come back to it, mm -hmm. right? It's an iterative process. Mm -hmm. Lots of parts of our system don't like that. Yeah. You want to write a plan, write, write a plan and execute the plan, right? right? That's not going to be how we get to a green economy. Right. It's an iterative process, and we all need to get comfortable with that. And, and we need to get comfortable with ensuring that we're talking across all of the stakeholders mm -hmm. that should be involved in these decisions. Yeah. We're, the world doesn't know, or the U.S. doesn't know it yet, um, but one of the dilemmas that we're in is in the um, fiber world. And that is in the late 90s, early 2000s, we put a bunch of dark fiber in the ground. But we really haven't since then. We've done a lot of what's called the last mile. So from the data center to your business, mm. all kinds of the telecom companies, entrepreneurials, municipalities, a lot of that. What we haven't been laying is fiber from Atlanta to Cheyenne, Atlanta to San Francisco, or whatever. Europe has a lot. We have not. And one of the biggest challenges in the telecom world right now is we, we are, um, I forget what it's called. I think it's called Shannon's Law in telecom uh, is equivalent to Moore's Law in computational power, right? Okay. And the idea is I have light frequency. I move packets along this fiber and there's a certain number of frequencies that I can eliminate. And what we used to do is we would just on each end of the wire, put in new, more powerful optics or more powerful computer. If you imagine where we're reaching the theoretical limit of these optical machines in the past, it was no big deal. You just every three years, I say no big deal as a non-telecom engineer, no big deal, but you pop these things out and you pop the new one in and now I can take advantage of more frequencies and you know more density and push more packets. Well, we're reaching the end of that. And so what the provide the um, telecom folks are saying, hey, I need to light up two more pairs of fiber or four more pairs of fibers. And the infrastructure people are saying there isn't there isn't any more. That trunk is full. Pipelines full. Pipelines. Yeah. So this is our version of transmission. Right. And as we're looking at this hockey stick of growth. So it's led to acceleration of satellite and other technology, but the most reliable and the most powerful is terrestrial fiber. And so not picking on any particular group, because there's all kinds of people that have been involved in this. But to your point about bringing the stakeholders together and having a long enough plan on how we do that to now we're staring down the barrel of this. 10 to 12 year, very Exciting. expensive, yeah. right of way, challenging, trying to get new fiber infrastructure in the ground between these communication hubs. It is not easy and um, will bear to some degree or the other the brunt of not having that. And, and nobody will care until they go to use their device and it starts, you know what I mean? I mean, it starts bumping into it. We couldn't imagine 1080p TVs, much less 4K or 8K TVs. I don't know how much more detail, you know, we need to see the fuzzy hairs on the butterfly as it lands on the mole, like why? But that's our world. Yeah. And um, anyway, it, it just goes back to... And so that's where it's not just about what we're going to build. Right. 
but the regulations and the permitting and, and sure. efficiency in our process of achieving a, a green economy as well in that decarbonization. So you have to have some lawyers Right. You know, as friends, you have to, you know, you have to engage with the environmental community and you and, and places where you're going to go through um, uh, our our native lands. Right. You need to engage with the native community. Right. In an honest and empathetic way. Right. Right. But just because we simplify the way that we license or permit something doesn't mean that we're pushing someone's concerns aside. Right. And I think that's where it's important for all of these complex technologies that you have um, conversations. We're crossing, sorry, we're crossing over boundaries here, right? right? And I've put a lot of my nuclear decimal points in my pocket, right, such that we can talk about the technology without right being intimidating. We can talk about common goals. Right. We, you know, I think this is the important part that, and, and it truly is a generational opportunity we have right. to think about, you know, what we're going to leave behind for these next generations, Right. you know, and, um, and I think the more that we can, we can form the right consortiums around that come at these conversations, honestly expressing what we need and what we want and, and trying to balance all of that. Yes. We're going to solve <laughs> world peace. I, I am a tech optimist. Um, and uh, so this has been for me a very optimistic conversation. I appreciate it a lot. Uh, my imagination runs wild when you were talking about bringing the various stakeholders for right away. Or the, I mean, if it were easy, we'd do it. It's easy. One of the things that we've had conversations, um, I haven't been directly involved in them, but I've, I've heard them. As, as we're not competing for right away, but I've talked to right of way people <clears throat> as they're looking to establish some of these things. When you talk about protected areas, whether it's people group protected areas or natural resource protected areas, whatever they are, there's a reason why they should be protected. But one of the things we try to help articulate is the value of bringing technology to those. For example, if I have a high fire risk area and I can get fiber near there in a, in a reasonable way that makes sense for all of us, and I can establish whether it's cellular base stations, um, 5G works really good out of doors. It doesn't work great in a in a doors. And this is more of a development idea. And I can have a drone station there, solar powered drone station that's flying over sections of the forest, mm -hmm. looking for thermal anomalies to do a fast alert to a fire before somebody in a tower who's probably not manning the tower anyway, detects smoke or a satellite needs more information right. to do that. If I can see anomalies or migration of herds or like there's so many things I can do with technology that's not necessarily a large energy footprint and I don't have people out there and I can get it, but I got to get it back to the tower. It's not going to Wi-Fi it out. I got to connect it to that station to send it through the fiber link. And there's, there's more to be developed, but those are the ways we're like, how do we in a minimal footprint bring infrastructure through that can also be leveraged for other stuff? But we can imp we can help um, improve um, 
the areas that were around or bring technology to uh, marginalized people groups or whatever. How do we do that? Now, I'm sometimes skeptical about the people who are showing up for it's for your benefit. You know, we've we started off that 400 years ago, giving glass beads to people and saying, no, 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 if you'll just give us this. But still, I do think there's a path there. And if we have enough of the um, right minded stakeholders, we'll hold each other accountable while we while we go through this. But to not do it, you know, at least part of me says, well, we have a competitive advantage in the world today of energy availability, of technology and entrepreneurial and whatever we're talking about regulation here compared to the rest of the world. It's much less in most cases, not always in a good way, but it is um, usually easier to do business. And we've just got to embrace this idea of how do we um, how do we hold each other accountable while we develop this or for whatever value it is. For future generations, we will lose some of the competitive edge that we have in the world marketplace. And I think that's important, not at all costs, but it's important for us to think about. It is important for us to think about. I want to change your verb, though. Please do. Instead of holding each other accountable, I think all of this starts with trust. I love that. Insert trust instead of suspicion. I mean, I, and and to me, that's where it's important that you're establishing those relationships before you're having that right of way discussion, before I'm ready to put a shovel in the ground. Right. Like, let me come and know you. I don't go into any state or community or region that I'm not partnered with a local leader. Mm. I'm from San Jose, California. Right. What do I know about what you want to do in Montana? Right. What do I know about what you want your community to be? I know a few things about nuclear technology, mm -hmm. and I can help you imagine what it could do for you, mm -hmm. but it's not my decision. It's your decision. Mm -hmm. right? So to me, it's about that trust and partnership in all of this. Mm -hmm that gives us the opportunity to really not just do what we need to do here, mm -hmm. but then take that expertise and lead it globally yeah. and share it. But if we can't start all of this, um, it's Melissa Lott. You should contact Melissa Lott at Columbia. Okay. She'd be a great interview for okay, you as cool. well. Um, recently I saw her at a conference and, and she's like, these projects will move at the speed of trust. That's true. And clearly that stuck with me. Right. And I, I think if we're approaching, again, approaching these opportunities in that way and getting the right people involved, setting aside suspicion, we'll get there. Right. And 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 having having our vision be big enough, having our vision be rooted in true sustainability. What does that mean across this ecosystem? Right. Which means you have to think about more than just your little world. Right. And you have to trust that the person that's come to the table, that's the climate expert, that they're not playing a game with you. Right. right? They're, they're giving you their best knowledge right. and, and their best experience. Yeah. And then you can start to build those scenarios. You can start to look at how I optimize my resources. What are the best choices here? Yeah. So. I hope we can. I love that idea. Um, and I'd be glad to give you the introduction to Melissa. She's great. I look forward to it. Um, we started off 
um, <laughs> talking about entrepreneur, and I, I think we're, we're, I want to respect your time. We need to um, wrap up here in a second. But I, I thought it would be fun to end with, um, one, if there's something we haven't talked about, let's nail it. But I would love to know, back when we started talking about entrepreneurs, how, if you had some advice to give to organizations or to individuals that are entrepreneurial minded, that want to get involved with gain or in this space that you work in, what would that advice be? Call me first. Call me first. Call before you dig. Well, you know, it's um, what I would say is if you're interested in nuclear technology, mm -hmm. make a nuclear friend. Mm -hmm. Okay. So maybe don't be intimidated by the technology. Mm -hmm. Bring your idea. Let's hear it. I mean, this is, this is the opportunity of a lifetime. Right. In many, many ways. Right. And to have, um, to have a program like ours which is built to say, yeah, that's a good idea. Let's see how we can build on it. Let me introduce you to some experts in the following areas that might be able to, to blossom that out into to something more. Um, I think that's living in Silicon Valley. It's mm -hmm. many shots on goal, mm -hmm. right? That's what's going to get us here. So I don't think we should be turning away any idea mm -hmm. um, and bringing all of those ideas forward. We have in our program the amazing opportunity for private companies to write a work scope for national lab staff to execute, and I pay the bill. Mm. And that data, the results of those reports is protected to your company for five years so that it gives you time to go out and do the commercial and the marketing, mm -hmm. right, and put your business plan together. I mean, when has the government had that in the past, right? right? And and I think it's also we're seeing just the Department of Energy shift from not not just doing the fundamental research, but the deployment and the demonstration and being focused on being in community, figuring out where we might deploy, where does that make sense, mm. and, and getting our staff out of the labs and into the field. And I think this is an amazing time for, for those partnerships, those public-private partnerships to um, to open up an, an incredible amount of opportunity. You've made a believer out of me. I, I, I can't remember the last time I was excited for uh, a government program like this. It's <laughs> amazing. Um, you're a great... Uh, evangelist for the program. Thanks for coming on the show. Oh, thank you. And I, to be honest with you, I am, I am humble that I get to lead this program and, you know, say I'm, I'm here from the government and I'm here to help and I can, I can back that up. It's your cleaning lady roots. Right? <laughs> Absolutely. Christine King, thanks for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. All right. Thank you. My great pleasure. Hey, if you like that conversation, hit the like button. If you loved it, subscribe. We'll see you next time, everybody. Have a good one.